This is Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care, where we have insightful conversations about parenting for bio, foster, adoptive, or blended families to better understand the experiences we all face as families. Hello, everyone. So my voice is not the first voice you normally hear when you listen to the Fostering Conversations podcast. Deborah Lindner, she was ready to join us today, but we've had some significant technical issues and she was not able to join us. We decided just to go ahead and record the episode. You'll hear her lovely, familiar voice again. So September is Kinship Month, and we wanted to dedicate September's episode to the topic of kinship. And also to let everybody know that grand families, who many of you may have used their services through the Children's Service Society, they typically do a town hall in September, but this year they've decided to instead encourage families, particularly grand families, to look up grandparentsacademy.org and look at the amazing offerings they have coming up. It's the second full week of September, and we'll make sure we have the links on our podcast episode. There's a lot of amazing classes. They're all free, and they're all geared toward supporting relatives who are caring for relative children in their home. But our guest today, and we're so excited, is Ashley Barton. Some of you, especially those of you listening in the Southwest region, may know Ashley's name very well. She supervises both the kinship consultant team as well as the resource family consultant team. So she oversees both of those arms, and so she has a really broad view of the foster care program and and the role of foster parents and the role of of kinship parents. So we'd like to thank Ashley for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And the first question I want to start off, Ashley, is just, I just would like to know a little bit more about you, about if you're a native Utah, how you got started in child welfare work, how you got started working for DCFS. We'd just love to hear your history. All right. So I am native to Utah. I've been in Southern Utah my whole life. I started my education in sociology. So that's what my undergraduate degree is in. And I got involved in the CASA program through the Guardian Lightem's office and volunteered there for about a year. And a job opening came available at DCFS that I applied for. And that started my career at DCFS as a caseworker on the foster care team. I was a caseworker for, I want to say, four years, and then I supervised the foster care team. And about two and a half years ago, I transitioned to the kinship and resource family consultant team. And I've been with DCFS for a little over 11 years now. Okay, so a a lot of history you've seen. The second question I want to ask you is, tell me the differences between supervising a foster care team and supervising the resource and kinship family consultant team. Okay, the foster care team is really hands-on with the parents and children attending court hearings and really involved in that whole process. The kinship and resource family consultant teams were more involved in the placement aspect of placing children either with foster parents or with our kinship families. And then when they are placed with kinship families, my team conducts like home studies and helps get supports in place for the kin caregiver. And then we provide that support through the life of the case, whether that's until the children return home to their parents or another permanency option takes place. I like that term, the life of the case. That really is very evocative and I think a positive way of of talking about it. 
So the one thing we know is that DCFS has, in the last several years, kinship has always been a priority as mm-hmm. far as placement goes. And we've seen that priority really, just that commitment to that priority really increase in the last several years. Would you talk a little bit about why DCFS feels that placement with kin is so important? Yeah. So research shows that children who are removed from their parents experience trauma, obviously, but that trauma is reduced when they are placed with a relative or familial person in their life. We want to reduce the trauma that children experience. The placing with kin caregivers is one way to do that. It also shows that it improves their mental and behavioral health. It maintains like those family connections and those cultural connections, which is what plays into their um, improved mental health and behavioral health. So ultimately, it comes down to maintaining those familial connections and bonds and reducing the children's trauma. How do you go about finding kin that are able and willing to take in these children? Yeah, so when children are removed from their parents, one of the first questions we ask the parents is, if there are any relatives that can be a support or provide care for the children. So we will get that information. And then we also have access to different databases to search relative information. So we do a thorough search that way and then verify those relative names with either the parent, the child, if age appropriate, or a known relative can also help us verify that. Then we send out letters notifying the relatives that they have someone who's related to them in custody and what their ability is to help support that child and parent, whether that's through being a support person or a placement resource for the child. Do you ever find that you have more than one kin that comes forward and maybe you have some conflict between family members who both want to take the child? Yeah, that does come up occasionally. And we try to hold what's called a kinship meeting at the beginning of a case to identify those relatives and explain the process of what being a kinship caregiver entails, training requirements, the case plan requirements for the children and parents, and the safety inspection requirements of the home and background checks. And we go through that whole process and try and get the family to identify who the best placement option is going to be. If they can't identify that on their own, if it's still conflictual, ultimately DCFS makes that decision and it will come down to what's in the best interest of the children, the proximity to the parents to facilitate visitation, the relative that's able to fulfill the goals of the case. So likely supporting reunification with the parents and then also able to be a permanency option for whatever that goal might be, whether it's guardianship or adoption. So take all of those things into consideration when identifying where the children will be placed. Wonderful. And what are some barriers that might prevent kin from feeling like they can take the child into their care? Everyone has to pass a background check. So if there's any concerns there, that might be a hesitation. And with our kinship families, they're not expecting to have additional children come into their home. So there's also the space in their home that could be a barrier or having enough beds for the children to each have their individual bed. And then it's a big time commitment also because children in care have a lot of appointments through visitation, mental health, medical, dental vision. 
and just adding additional kids to your family is a lot of work and sporting activities. And yeah, that can become a lot for a family. And we have a lot of families that show their resilience every day in working through this process and making it work so that their relatives can live with them. I like to hear that. What percentage of children in the Southwest region are placed with kin? I don't have an exact percentage off the top of my head. I believe it's in the 40% range, but I'm not positive. Okay. Okay. But a significant number of kids. That's wonderful to hear. So when a child ends up being placed with a foster family, one thing we tell the foster parents, because we train both kinship and foster parents, but one thing we tell foster parents is that this child may come into your care, but remember DCFS is still looking for kin. And it's highly likely that these children will be transitioned from your home to a kin placement. What are the timelines that foster parents need to be aware of? I know there's been some recent legislative changes. What do foster parents need to be aware of uh, when that search is still ongoing? Yeah, so it is required to do monthly searches for relatives for every child in care that's not already placed with a relative. So every month we're searching for that. And there's a eight-month presumption that kinship is in the child's best interest unless proven otherwise. However, if kin come forward after that eight months, but before 12 months, they're still given preference for placement. Ultimately, up until that 12-month mark, kinship has preference over any other placement aside from a non-custodial parent. Okay. I think this is the question we always have in foster care because it's the most uncertain thing anyone will ever do. No one ever knows what's going to happen. But how could foster parents best prepare themselves for that potential of kin and having a child maybe for eight months to a year and then needing to transition them. What kind of advice would you give to foster parents? No, it's really hard. We ask a lot of our non-related foster parents to take these kids in and love them as their own, but also let them move to a relative placement when that is safe and appropriate to do so. So some advice I would give them is just to keep an open mind about it from the beginning and support those family connections. So whether that's phone calls, video calls, or ongoing visitation with extended relatives. So that connection isn't broken and they can see that relationship between the child and kin relative and what that's like. It's also helpful. Laws and policies are constantly changing. And so trying to stay familiar with those can be helpful because sometimes it it may feel like an attack from DCFS that we're moving the child from their home and it's not a personal attack or a feeling of us saying the foster parent is not a great option. It's just that we have these laws and policies to place with relatives when we're able to. And so just having foster parents know that we value them and we know that they do an excellent job and love these kids and take care of them. And we're not saying they're not doing a great job by moving the children to a relative placement. Yeah. And I think that's one concern we've heard from families is, aren't we good enough? And we always just try to remind them it has nothing to do with your goodness. It's just that this is a relative and that's something that we always want to take into account. So you you talked about supporting like visitation and calls and that. What are some other things foster parents can do in that transition time when they know the child will either absolutely be moving or most likely be moving? What are some things foster parents can do to support that move? I would just recommend doing things that make the child feel comfortable. So maybe doing it at the pace the child's comfortable with. Is it a slow transition where they have some visits and maybe a weekend overnight before fully moving in with the relative? Do they want to move immediately and helping them feel 
okay doing that. So they're not torn between hurting one person's feelings by moving to another relative's home. So I think it's just meeting the child where they're at and trying to navigate the best that that they can. I like that too. And and keeping in mind that I think sometimes we get caught up in how we're feeling, which is really normal. And I think sometimes we forget that child may actually be feeling some responsibility for if we feel bad. And so reminding them that's not their responsibility, that's ours to ours to hold instead of theirs. That's a really good point. So I want to back up just a little bit. When you talked about that ongoing search, and there's that eight to 12 month timeline we're looking at, it's not like at 12 months, you're going to call the foster parents and say, oh, we found grandma, kids leaving today, that it's not going to be like that because you have to like background checks and home studies and all that stuff has to happen before that move would take place. At what point do you notify the foster family that a viable kin has been found or identified so they know that process will be beginning? Yeah, I think that in my opinion, caseworkers should notify the foster parents as soon as they're able to let them know there is a potential relative option. And this is where we're at in the process. Does that mean we're just starting a background check? We're getting gathering information or is this they've passed a background check and we're doing a safety inspection of their home and talking to the team about this. So I just think the importance of that transparency. So foster parents are aware of where they're at in the process with that kinship relative. And the caseworker might not have all the answers that the foster parent wants in the moment, but I think having that open communication of letting them know where they're at in the process is what's ideally best. Wonderful. And you supervise both teams, so both the Mm -hmm. RFCs and the KFCs. Do you find a lot of collaboration between them? If this kinship consultant has a child that might be going to one of their kin and this RFC has that family, do you find communication between them about what's happening and how to best support both families? Yes. So my team, they're great at communicating with each other and letting them know Maybe this is what we're struggling with, or this is the situation, and how can we make this the best transition for everyone involved? And yeah, they work really closely together. That's wonderful to hear. So I want to like shift a little bit. We've been talking quite a bit about the foster parents' role in supporting this process. But I want to talk a little more about the kinship family. Like you said, this was not their plan. They didn't decide to become foster parents and do everything and then get the kids. They're getting the kids and having to make that decision really quickly. And I really love what you said about that that resilience they show and and the flexibility to do what they need to do to bring these kids into their home. What supports are available for kinship families? There are supports. So through the Department of Workforce Services, we get the children on Medicaid. There is some limited financial support through DWS that can help mostly just meet the basic needs of the children because we know it's expensive to raise children. And that can be supplemented while we're working with the with the kinship caregivers to become fully licensed. There's also Grand Families, which is a great resource, and they have recently expanded to, I wouldn't say recently, but have more involvement in Southern Utah and the St. George area, which is has been really great to link our families with and, and get that connection. There is also like the cluster groups, and they invite kinship families, which is a great resource to find that connection with one another. And our kinship workers, they provide support through the whole process. And once the home study is complete, they don't drop out. They maintain contact. They'll attend team meetings with the caregiver. They will do home visits still to make sure 
that they're having the support that they need throughout the case as well. So historically, this is you know, back in the day, it's been several years since I was a trainer. And so my direct involvement with families is a little bit less now. But we had kinship, some who chose to become licensed and some who chose not to become licensed. But still, they saw the kids in their care, but it's just a different track. Do you encourage families to get licensed? Do you just let them know these are the two options you get to choose? What's some of that conversation like with those families? We try to encourage them to get licensed just because of the benefits. There's a little more financial support if they become licensed. And and the training that comes along with getting licensed is very beneficial in helping care for these children. So we encourage that. It's not required for a relative, though. So if they don't have the ability or time to get licensed, then we would still support them and do their home study and walk through the process with them and through the case. They just wouldn't have the same requirements of doing certain trainings and getting licensed that way. Okay. And some supports that might be available to licensed families, such as the daily reimbursement for foster care, some of those things would not be available, but they would still have the DWS specified relative grant still would have the Medicaid. They would still have those, but they wouldn't have as much of of the other. So one thing I used to see, and this has been a long time ago, because when Kin used to train the same track as foster families, so I had kinship families in the room and always loved it. One thing I did hear quite a bit was that sometimes it was hard for them because it was their sister, it was their son, it was their brother. And sometimes there was history with that relative that wasn't really positive. And they had a harder time sometimes supporting reunification when they already had a history with this relative that wasn't as positive. Yeah. And that still does happen from time to time because, you know, the family's been there through all of this. And up until the children came into DCFS custody, some positive things about placing with Ken is you can watch the family heal together in this process. And we try to work and mend those relationships with them and have it become a family supportive unit. So that's one of the positive things you can see from placing with relatives that do have some discord. That's not always the case, but ultimately, if everyone has the children's needs and best interest and can support that, then it's still a good placement for those kids. It's wonderful. We were having a conversation just recently that so much of the work DCFS does, because you guys are working you can't trumpet what you do because these are family stories. This is this is their privacy. This is their their family. And you can't just go out and share all this amazing work you do. And that so much of the work you guys do is behind the scenes. And the community doesn't know all the work that you guys do. So I just would like, just when you're talking about healing and bringing those families together, just amazing work that DCFS is doing that just doesn't ever get acknowledged. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. Yeah, we'd absolutely appreciate that. So what, what about community supports? What, what kind of community supports are available that, so we have grand families, but what else is there that you might tell families about that they might look into or seek out to help them as they're caring for these kids? Yeah, there is like the family support centers that are a great resource. Another thing that kinship families have the ability to get are two approved respite providers. So. We do the background checks and pass to respite providers so that the kinship caregivers can have some respite from caring for the kids or they have a babysitter if they need to go somewhere. And 
that ends up being a really great support for them, um, especially because it's typically someone the child's already familiar with. And so, again, it's maintaining those relationships and connections for them. Other uh, resources at uh, each community is a little different. And so the resources look a little different. So it depends where you're located. In Southwest region, we're a little more rural, so don't have quite as many options as like Salt Lake area. But we are getting a Christmas box house location in the Cedar office with resources and supplies to provide to families. And we do have one in the St. George office. So that's another resource we can use to help these families. And that is what's coming to mind at the moment. Hey, those, are, those are great wins. And like you said, it does depend, very community dependent. Uh, we're going to have some links uh, that Ashley's already sent and then some other ones um, across the state on this episode page so that folks can check that out. So another question I want to ask you is, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but are there relatives that are able to keep the kids from even coming into foster care. So they step in early enough that those kids never even have to come into DCFS custody. Yes. And I think that happens a lot that communities just aren't aware of. I know there's a lot of families that grand families support and a mentor that are caring for a relative. As far as with DCFS involvement, we can't recommend that the parents place the child with a relative to prevent a removal or something, because essentially that's us recommending removal. But if the parent comes to that on their own and recognizes maybe it's safer for my child or this would be helpful while I get some help for myself, the parent can absolutely do that and in place with that relative and come up with a safety plan as a family on their own without DCFS removing the child. Yeah, and that's, and I think once again, some of the unseen work that's being done by so many families who are caring for these kids without any kind of additional supports that they may have if that child were in care. So I guess another question is a call that we get a lot at Utah Foster Care, I would say maybe not on a weekly basis, but I bet on at least a monthly basis is a relative that has taken in a relative child informally, and now they want to get DCFS involved because maybe the safety plan wasn't followed, or they feel like they can't take care of the child anymore. When we get those calls at Utah Foster Care, I think I'm probably going to, we probably do what you're going to tell us to do anyway. We just have them call the intake line. Mm-hmm. But is there any other advice you would have us give families who are maybe not involved with DCFS, but feel like DCFS involvement might be helpful? I would have to recommend they call intake also, because there's not a whole lot we can do without having a case. But even if the, say, the grandparent or relative is able to keep the child and we have an open investigation or something, we can help them apply for the specified relative grant and link them to some of those connections to support them without the children coming into custody. CPS is great at finding resources and connecting them with supports as much as possible. And hopefully we can keep them with that relative without them having to come into care. But there are some things like the grant that we can help apply for because it's a lot of paperwork and kind of some weird questions on that form that may not make sense to someone that's not used to doing them on a regular basis. They're just a kind of technical assistance yeah. to help that family. And and the work you guys do and other unseen work you're doing is that family preservation work. And mm-hmm. that's probably been that realm of how do we keep these kids from coming into care? How do we preserve this family as it's currently constituted. Yeah. 
Yeah, which recently your director, Tanya Myrup, has been going around the state doing listening sessions with foster parents. And part of that, Kevin Jackson, who's one of her deputies, presents some stats. And the number of children coming into care has declined pretty significantly in the last five years. And we've talked, why is that? And had those conversations. And I think that this, this, the fact that we have families stepping forward, I don't know if that's happening more, but we know it's happening. And Mm -hmm. once again, there's so much that's happening that we just simply are not aware of because people are just doing the work and, and helping in their family and in their community. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of behind the scenes stuff that goes on that the public or community aren't aware of that we really are trying to preserve families without having to remove children. So that's our last resort if the safety of the child cannot be maintained in the home, the parent. I was talking with a woman I know who's a principal of a school in a underserved community, and mm. she's also a foster parent, an adoptive parent. And we were talking about the lower number of kids coming into care, and she said that they've seen it at their school that they've historically have had to make referrals and Mm -hmm. that a lot of those, I'm not sure how many, but some significant number have resulted in removals. And she said not one referral they made in the last probably year has actually resulted in a removal. She said she's just Mm -hmm. seen an increase of services for the families. And both she and I were just so happy that case. So I thought that was amazing. Yeah, it's great when we can keep families together. Yeah, wonderful. You're doing the work. I hate to ask you, you like your life plans, but is this, is your heart is here and you're staying here and this is the work you want to continue doing for a while? Yes, I love it. I love the role I'm in and, and watching the miracles that take place. And so I don't have any plans to leave in the near future. I enjoy where I'm at. Oh, wonderful. I know that uh, we've had your praises sung by others. And so uh, we are really lucky that we're happy to have this time and, and to talk with you today. And grateful for the work that you do, uh, both the work that is seen and especially the work that is unseen, because that makes a big difference in the lives of children and families. And we're grateful for that. So thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, we are going to end our conversation with Ashley, and we're so grateful that she joined us. Uh, Check out the episode page, and we'll have links there to the Grandparent Academy training, as well as the Grand Families support services and some other support services that may be helpful for kinship families, licensed or unlicensed. Thank you to all the families for all you do. Like Deborah always says, you don't need to know everything to be a foster parent. You just need to be willing to learn. And I think that's true for all of us. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next month. This has been Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, go to utahfostercare.org. We'll see you next time.